Welcome to the Generations Church Podcast. This is Brian Nugent, and I'm the pastor at Generations Church. Thanks for listening today. We hope this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. If you have your Bibles this morning, uh, turn with me to the book of Exodus. We've been doing a series on Moses, liberator, lawgiver, and leader. And I'm going to be reading selected passages from Exodus 20, 32, and 33. So we've been kind of been watching Moses' life from the very beginning when he was uh, called at the, you know, at the burning bush and the Lord sent him to Egypt to, to liberate the Hebrews from the bondage of the Egyptian slaves. We saw how God used him through the plagues. We saw the ultimate uh, deliverance with the Passover when they finally left Egypt. We saw them march to the Red Sea and saw the great miracle of the Red Sea. And, and then last, last time there were four tests that the Lord gave them the test of attitude, the test of obedience, the test of provision, and the test when spiritual opposition comes. So they were they were tested. And now we're approaching, you know, the moment of the Ten Commandments. Okay, so you gotta go Google Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments. You gotta you gotta see that scene. You know, uh, it's it's powerful. But so they they come in their travels. They come to Mount Sinai, and the Lord tells Moses. He said, "Now tell them to come to Mount Sinai, but don't walk up on the mountain." I want them to purify themselves. I want them to cleanse themselves in every way. Tell them to take a bath and to come to the border of Mount Sinai. Millions of people, but don't come up on the mountain. So Moses, I want you and some of the leaders on a certain day, I want you to come up on the mountain. But when you get about halfway, the leaders just stay there. And Moses, only you come uh, to the top. So that this is where... The Lord starts to give the law, the the Ten Commandments, and other things as as we know at that you know at that particular moment. So let me just give you a little glimpse of what the world was like before the Ten Commandments were were given. So this was a this was a game changer to finally have some kind of written law and some kind of written code. At the moment that the Ten Commandments was given, uh, the world was very family and family tribe oriented. They weren't really cities. They weren't states. You just kind of lived with your family. When you got married, you just stayed there and developed a family clan. We don't do that anymore. When you get married, it's time to go. You got you to move out, all right? But they just kind of stayed, and it was kind of very tribe, very clannish, uh, uh, no, no social structure necessarily, little social norms or behavior because there was no written law. It's just kind of, you know, uh, kind of the wild, wild west as far as whatever you wanted to do. So no kind of uh, societal structure at all. There was no police, laws, or civil authorities. So there's no written law. There's no police that you call. So, man, it was just, you know, it was just, 
It was morally chaotic because there was no written law. We, we understand that now. We have police that we call if there's a violation, people you know, that can enforce that, courts. None of that existed. So it was morally chaotic at, at the time. One man in Genesis said, I killed a man because he hit me. So a guy hit him, a man was killed over it, and that was just the way that the world was functioning at that particular time. And the only restraining force were people's conscience. Just whatever, they, they felt uncomfortable, they didn't do it, but there was no written law, there was no authorities, no courts, no jails, no, you know, no, nothing. So there was so much wickedness going on, and it was so chaotic, morally chaotic, that if you'll remember in the time of Genesis, the Lord wiped out, you know, the, the civilization because of their violence and because of their hatred for mankind. So, we, you know, once, once after Noah and this repopulation started again, man, it, it still was this you know, just awful, awful, you know, place. Now, that doesn't mean that God wasn't moving and speaking at that particular time. I mean, it was different world, but if you'll remember through Genesis, there was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. You had the patriarchs. You had God speaking and God was on the move, you know, so it wasn't you know, there was a, a, a people that were hearing from God, but the backdrop of all culture and society, you know, was just, you know, it was just very difficult. So the Ten Commandments were spiritual in nature, but helped to bring civil order to the world as well. So when he gives the Ten Commandments, there are spiritual things that are mixed in with civil things that the Lord feels like can help bring order and structure you know, to the world. So they were spiritual in nature. We're going to talk about them in a moment. There was no other God. He said, no other gods before me, no idols. Don't misuse the Lord's name, you know, use the Lord's name in vain. So that was spiritual, but you had civil code as well. Do not murder, do not steal, do not lie. So for the first time in civilization, you had a written code that started to give definition to right and wrong behavior, and there were also penalties attached at the same time. It never happened before. You were just kind of your own judge. You were kind of your own police with that, you know, with that uh, the, uh, potential abuses that are there. So it's the first time that there was a moral code, especially, you know, from God, you know, especially uh, had, had, had religious themes, you know, in this as well. So I'm going to just real quick, I just want to kind of read over those Ten Commandments this morning. And it's very interesting of the, of the ten. Now, there's, the Lord gave a lot of them, but the ten that he felt like were the most important at that particular moment. So we're going to look at those in the context you know, of the times that they lived. So uh, he says to Moses, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You will have no other gods before me. Because after 400 years in Egypt, Egypt was well known for polytheism, the belief in multiple gods. It was foundational to them. So they are just kind of carrying on probably mentally what they've always known of kind of multiple gods. It had been seven generations that they had lived 
uh, in Egypt, and this probably had impacted their mind. And in Egypt, all of the gods basically were personifications of natural forces, the sun, the air, the, the earth, the Nile. So this is a reminder to Egypt. From the very beginning, he's trying to let them know that there is only one true God, and he is supreme above all others. They are not mutually connected. They are not equal. There is one God and there is one supreme God. And let me just say too, that is still needed and reminded uh, for us in this day as well. There's all kinds of multiple spiritual influences and religions. You can look on Wikipedia and find out all of them. But I just want to remind you, there is still one true God and there is no one like him. Amen? So that was the first one. Then he said, you will not make any image or idol. The Hebrews lived in a world that idols represented, to, represented deities in different human and animal forms. So an idol is a physical representation of deity, but it is limited by the human mind. So they were, the humans were trying to create, you know, uh, an idol and it, it was only, it was limited by the human mind. So he's just reminding them, listen, I am way too vast, way too strong, powerful for the human mind to kind of to, to form in, a, in a, a metal idol or structure. There is no comparison, you know, to me against some lifeless idol. And I want to say today, you know, it's still applicable today because the world is dotted with idol worship all around Buddhism, Shintoism, Hinduism, parts of the continent of Africa are given over to animism. Let me tell you, we shouldn't try He says, watch when there is an idol. There's a representation of, of, of another God. And I just want to remind you, we got idols here in America too. Idol of money, all right? Idol of uh, sports. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm preaching good this morning, all right? Social media, where the idol is ourself, all right? So he just says, no, no idols, no representation. I am, I am God, and there's no way that I could be uh, comprehended by the human mind. Don't misuse the name of the Lord, your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Have you ever noticed that most profanity is connected to the Christian faith? You know? Everybody, when they curse, it comes back to what we believe. Is there any profanity that has the name Muhammad in it? Is there any profanity that you hear with the name Dalai Lama? No, no. All, what, what, what is that about? It's all connected back to the Christian, to the Christian faith. And I, I just want to say, you know, like misusing the name of the Lord is to treat profanely that which is holy, to treat profanely that which is holy. So when we use God's name in vain, it shows a disrespect. It shows a spiritual arrogance because I want to just say his name is holy. 
His name is righteous. His name is pure. His name brings blessing. His name brings salvation. His name brings encouragement. Through his name, people are healed. They are saved. They are touched by God. Through his name, there is salvation. Through his name, there is eternal life. It's a holy name. It's a holy name. And people take it and they abuse it in the worst way. But what's going to be interesting is the last scene in heaven when everyone's standing there. Here are all these people that have profaned the name of God and the name of Jesus. And there's one interesting verse to me that says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So all of this, all these comedians with their profanity and how they they use the name of Jesus, there's going to be a day they're going to hear that name and they're going to fall to their face. Now my grandmother, you know, of course, she's raised in a different era. So, boy, you didn't, you didn't say bad words at all. But she had the word sugarfoot, okay? Like when she got a little stressed, that was sugarfoot. I don't even know what that meant, you know. So can I just say, if you're feeling a little stressed and you need to default to certain words to express your frustration, try sugarfoot. It worked for her, all right? Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's important because they were slaves. They worked every day. They worked every day. There was no off day. There was no holidays, long weekends. They were slaves. They worked every day. And the Lord said, nope, not anymore. Here's a day. Here's a day off. And I want to tell you about this day. It says it's a special day and it's a holy day. It's a holy day. He's blessed this day and it is a day set apart for him. And he said, don't work on this day. Be, just be, you know, be thankful. So when God blesses something and he makes it holy, we should honor, you know, we should honor that. So they had worked every day and he said, you know, take a day off on me. Take a day off. So the Sabbath is for rest, renewal, worship, thanksgiving, prayer, naps, fun, family, laughter, and friend. The Sunday afternoon nap is the best sleep throughout the week. You know why? Because God's blessed it. God's blessed it. So eat a good lunch, go home, and take a nap, and praise God when you wake up. Okay? All right. Honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. So it's interesting to me. Out of the first 10, you know, rules and laws that God gives, one goes to teenagers and middle school kids, okay? Wow. So what was going on in the world where he felt like in the top 10, I need to address those teenagers, okay? They came from very little home structure, home life. The Hebrew family structure was not valued. They were just slaves. Paul, when he quotes this verse, he calls it a commandment with promise because it says, honor your father and mother 
so that you may live long in the land and the Lord, the Lord your God is giving you. Paul calls it a promise with a, a commandment with a promise, okay? So to every middle school, high school, college student that's still living at home, this one is for you, okay? He connected your attitude and behavior to your parents, to your love and faithfulness to God, okay? Honor your father and mother. You honor, when you honor them, you honor the Lord. They are connected. It is difficult to come and worship with a full and pure heart when you've mistreated your parents throughout the week. Oh, there's some good preaching going on here, but you won't acknowledge it. You're afraid to say amen in front of your teenager, and that's the problem. I'm just kidding. So be respectful and kind and considerate to your parents. We show coaches and teachers and pastors, we treat them better than we do our own parents. Say thank you. Show appreciation. And it's still not old school to use the term, yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir, no sir. Okay? I still say it to my parents. They're pushing 80 years old. All right? Do what you're asked to do around the house. So you have certain rules and you don't do it and your parents stay on you because you don't do what they've asked and now we have a complicated relationship because you haven't done what they've asked you to do and they're on you all the time and now you're always bitter because you go, they're on me all the time because you have not done what you're supposed to do. All right? So just, just do it. You know, just do it. Honor the rules of the house. I just want to remind you, it's not your house. If you don't like it, Get your own house and rent and mortgage and insurance and groceries. Do what you're asked to do. Never yell, scream, or be verbally disrespectful. Sometimes the people that we're supposed to honor are the people that we treat the worst. Do things you're not asked to do around the house. Anticipate things that need to be done and do them, okay? Mom, I'm going to clean off the table tonight after dinner. Okay, tears will start dripping from her cheeks. Worship will start to happen. She's seen a miracle. All right. Listen, we go across the city and we serve homeless and we do all kinds of other things for other people and we don't do the basic stuff around the house. We go on mission fields. We do all kinds of stuff. So just just be helpful. Be helpful around the house. You shall not murder. Human life is created in the image of God and is a creation of God, so it's considered sacred. In Egypt, the value of human life was very low because they were, they were, just, they were a, a, a producer, a money producer. They were part of the machinery, the production. So murder happened all the time if they didn't meet quotas or, or whatever, so there was no value on human life, it just happened all the time, but human life from conception to we breathe our final breath is sacred to God, okay? It's why when you watch the National Geographic and the lion comes out of the jungle and he gets the poor gazelle, you know, the narrator doesn't say the lion murdered the gazelle, okay? Because the gazelle, the gazelle is not sacred, human made in the image 
of God. That is something that is unique for, uh, for human beings. That's why there is a penalty attached when you take, uh, when you take human life. You shall not commit adultery. Biblical adultery, physical or sexual intimacy, or any emotional involvement beyond reasonable social and business involvement. So it's the physical infidelity, but also Jesus said it's the emotional connection. You can, you can do it in your mind as well, all right? Well, you know, I don't love you anymore. We've grown apart I never really loved you in the first place. I feel trapped. I need to find myself. It's not you. It's me. I'm just not good enough for you. I love you, but I'm not in love with you. It's better for the kids. We hear all that kind of stuff, but I want to remind you of something. The mind justifies what the heart entertains. The mind justifies what the heart entertains. So when you're thinking this and it's going around in your mind, okay, then eventually you'll have a, a justification, a mental justification for that. Having a difficult season in marriage never justifies adultery, okay? Having a difficult season, you know, it doesn't give me or provide me an excuse. If you've got a difficult season in your marriage, that's fine. Welcome to the world, okay? Most, a lot of other people do as well, but it never justifies being unfaithful, never, okay? You shall not steal, when you take something that's not yours, okay, money, you know, things. I don't want to go down the tax road. Oh, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that, but, you know, that's too. That's part of it. You know, they did not understand the value of property and ownership. They were on a journey. Man, they're just, you know, when you're camping out with six million of your friends, you just borrow things, you just take things. So, so this law was, was to show the value of ownership of property. People steal today because they're selfish. You know, like what I want is more important than what you have. So people go steal or they're lazy. They're just lazy. They don't want to go work. Don't want to go work, so they just go steal things. Well, I want you to know something. If you want things in your life, God can bless the work of your hands. He can prosper you. He, he can give you that, and you don't have to cover it up. You don't have to pop the serial number off of it when you buy it. You don't have to be nervous when the police pull behind you. If you've stolen something, ask God to forgive you and give it back. Take it Back, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Okay, so this, we call it thou shalt not lie, which is true. But this is judicial in nature because there's a new criminal and civil pathway that he is, that he is creating. And you can't have criminal or civil law without honesty and truthfulness. Okay, so that, that he gives, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, it extends to other things as well. We call it thou shalt not lie. Very true, very true, all right? To my mother, the worst sin in the world was to lie. The worst sin in the world was to lie. And let me just tell you something about God and moms. They have this back channel, and it doesn't matter what you've done, how well you've covered over it, God's already told your mother. <laughs> it's not right, it's not fair, but it just happens, my mother would just know. She would just, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. You know you did it. You know you did it. 
What are you supposed to say? All right? So you don't give testimony. You don't, you, you don't, you don't lie. Don't covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So covetness is the root of a lot of other sins, adultery, stealing, all right? So covetness is not necessarily a sin of the hand. It is a sin of the mind. It creates this disposition in my heart of things that I want to go get or need or, or whatever, and I just go get it. Covetness shows that I'm not satisfied with what God has given me, okay? That I want something else. Now, you may look at that passage, and you may not be struggling over your neighbor's ox, and you feel like you're good this morning. It's not the ox I'm worried about. It's their Cadillac Escalade that I'm worried about for you. All right. All right. Covetness blinds our judgment. It blinds our judgment. So he gave this law. These are the top ten, but there were many others that went with this. And his law is there for my protection and benefit. The law that he put there is for my protection and benefit. Now, it's restrictive. I can't do everything that I want to do. I can't live out everything that's within my, within my heart. It's like traffic laws, okay? I mean, like, they're very restrictive. It slows me down. I can't drive on the side of the road that's the most, you know, convenient for me. But do you know what? They serve a benefit for everyone. They're, they protect me, and, and there's a benefit to me. Now, I don't know the joy of driving 115 miles an hour. I have no idea what that's like. But I'm alive as well, okay? So his law is there for my protection and my benefit. The law, those Ten Commandments, taught us what God expected, but we could not live up to the standards of the law. So here was the expectation Live by these, but what they found over time is that, man, people were having trouble obeying these laws, and they tried to, you know, put together with the sacrifices and all of that, but people were still, you know, falling short. So this law that was meant to protect me, in actuality, I kept tripping over it, and I was a violator. Now, that's just what humanity was like. Romans 8 talks about this in relation to Jesus, and I think it's very important. It says, For the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Okay, so when I was falling short, I could not, I could not live past this law. Jesus said, you know, I will take all of that on my back, what the law was powerless to do. Jesus did because he substituted, uh, substituted for our sins. So the, the Ten Commandments, they drive us into the arms of Jesus because we cannot live by these standards on our own. So if you're feeling hopeless, you are feeling frustrated, you know, I can't, you know, this is, a, it's not a performance-based religion where I just have to do a few things, try to be morally better. No, we just admit we cannot live it. We accept the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the substitutionary death on the cross, and man, now I can live free. He took the penalty for me not being able to live the law, all right? 
So he comes down, Moses, he comes down with these tablets. Man, what a great experience that he had. He's got these 10. People are waiting down at the bottom. Man, they are excited, I'm sure, because he's about to make his appearance. You know, so he walks down into this crowd and he is shocked by what he sees. Instead of a worship experience, instead of church services, here's what he saw. Aaron answered them, take off your gold earrings, what your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, bring them to me. All the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then he said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Aaron saw it. He built an altar in front of the calf. He announced tomorrow this will be a festival to the Lord. The next day the people arose early, sacrificed burnt offerings, presented fellowship offering. They sat down to eat and drink, got up to indulge in revelry. Okay, so here's what Moses finds. All right, wow. So they get restless because Moses is gone and Aaron has this idea, you know, I guess Moses is dead. So they fashion this calf out of all the gold and they start a celebration, but the celebration is very similar to the celebration of Passover. Some of the things they were supposed to do at Passover, Aaron just pulled right on over to this idol worship. God was very angry at the heart and the behavior of his people. And I want to say today, he still watches the heart and behavior of people today. God was very upset, and it was understandably so. It's only four months from the Passover to the Red Sea, and now we've got a golden calf, an altar, and we're having a, a celebration similar to that of Pharaoh. Moses is caught in the middle. He's got these tablets. He starts to get close. He hears the, the crowd roaring and all this festival, you know, that's, that's going on. So he's caught in the middle. He's looking back up and he's seeing the glory of God, but he's looking at the bottom of Sinai and he sees this, this horrible, horrible thing that is occurring. I want to tell you something. Listen. Listen, it's a very similar situation than that in our world. There is a shaking that's going on in our world. We have chosen our own way. And I want to speak, you know, for the world, but, you know, really more specifically the United States. We've chosen secularism and we have ridden that for decades. And we are now seeing the fruit of secularism that is emerging uh, in our nation. For decades, the voice of the church and of the gospel has been ignored, ridiculed. We've been intimidated by the voices of secularism. And now we are seeing the bitter fruit of a secular world and a socialist world that is emerging right before us. I believe we are headed into a moral abyss and if we we just keep thinking if I can get the right president and if I can get the right party in power then things will be corrected and I want to tell you both of those parties are godless and they are corrupt to a certain extent and if you think there is spiritual renewal or a spiritual awakening will come with one party or the other then you are wrong 
Our hope and our trust is in Jesus. Our families are broken. Many of our inner cities are like war zones. Our nation is lost and unraveling. And our only hope for the future is God. Our only hope for the future is God. Listen. We look around on the news, all kinds of things happening in this world, and this is a wake-up call for us. This is an awakening if we've ever, if we've ever seen one. We've got some issues in our country, and we keep doubling down on secularism when it needs to be a renewal and repentance and coming, coming back to God. That was part of what bothered Moses. But also Moses saw a compromised religious system. Aaron was the priest, remember? Aaron was the priest, but he was the one leading in the promotion of the idol. He was the one gathering the gold and led the charge. Let me ask you something. Where did they get that gold to make that calf? Where did these poor slaves get all of that gold? Remember when they left Egypt and the Lord favorably disposed, or made, the, made the Egyptians favorably disposed, and they gave all of their gold away. So here is something that God blessed them with. And now they've turned it and they've made an idol. We gotta be careful. There are times that God will favor us and bless us, but if we're not careful, it can turn around and be a snare to us on an individual basis. Moses saw corrupt spiritual leadership. Who's leading the charge? It's the Levite. It's Aaron. I want to tell you something today. We need to keep an eye on here. I don't have time to watch every ministry. I don't know what's going on. I don't, I don't have any personal, you know, kind of things to say this morning, but I want to tell you something. People that you watch and listen to, if they're all filled with pop psychology, self-help, ego-driven with money at the core, man, you need to watch them. I don't care how many followers they have. I don't care how popular they are. Let me tell you, if somebody's charging you, you know, and you want to send money because of holy anointing oil that you can buy from them, well, I hope you get a rash. Let me just tell you that. <laughs> don't, be, don't, be, don't be buying that foolish stuff. Well, maybe not a big rash. Maybe a small one, though. All right? Corrupt spiritual leadership. Listen to me. If people are too cool, if they're too popular, and they, they don't talk about the person of Jesus or the power of Jesus or the cross of Jesus, then you need to let them go. You don't need to listen to them or follow them. Well, they're on YouTube as that's the arbiter of all things good and holy. They got a podcast. Listen, if they never talk about Jesus, if they never talk about your sin and repentance, if they never point to the old rugged cross, you need to let them go and leave them alone. He saw corrupt spiritual leadership, but he also saw people with no spiritual discernment and there was no praying holy remnant that would say no to what was happening in the moment. It's very similar today. People don't read the Bible. You just trust everything that you hear. You don't know the Bible for yourself. You don't read. You don't pray. 
depend on everybody else, what's, what's popular. No, no discernment. There's no spiritual maturity, so there would be no spiritual discernment at all. The church world has no discernment on what's right or wrong. So here Aaron says, let's fashion a a calf, give me your gold. And here they are giving the gold and baking cakes for the festival that was to come. This was the people of God. There was no remnant that said, no, it's it's out of line. Jesus saw the same thing when he walked through the temple and it made him angry and he turned over tables and he said, this is not what my house is about. My house is a place of prayer. Jesus used this term about corrupt spiritual leaders. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. But most most people have no idea it's a wolf. They have no discernment. They have no built, you know, they don't know God's word at all to be able to, to judge what is being spoken. So they bring the wolves in their midst. God's calling us to pray just like Moses when he saw this. When he saw this, oh my goodness gracious. Like he, he, was, he was upset. But what does he do? You know, does is he just, we need to negotiate, we have a, a talk. Does he just turn his back and just walk away at this horrible scene? No, Moses begins to pray. And you can look at that prayer in Exodus 32. It's a prayer of favor, it's a prayer of mercy, it's a prayer of confession and a reminder of God's promises. And I just want to say to this church, if there's ever a time that this church needed to be united in prayer, it is now. Man, there is spiritual warfare all around. It is not time for us to, you know, to uh, to be discouraged or be disconnected from the church. This is the time of of prayer, of repentance, and for God's mercy, and for revival and awakening in the world and this church. Amen? It's that moment. It's that moment. And last, worship team, you can come. It's a scene that's always intrigued me and that I loved. Moses has been to the burning bush. He saw it. He witnessed firsthand the plagues. He was the one that led the the miracle of the Passover. The Red Sea lifted his hand. He saw the cloud of fire by day and night. He was up on Mount Sinai with the Lord, but yet there was something that was missing. Something that was missing. And Moses says to the Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'll have mercy upon you. He said, but no one can see my face and live. He said, but there is a place near me where you can stand on a rock. And my glory is going to pass by. And I'm going to put my hand over until I've passed by. And I'll remove my hand and you'll be able to to see my back. So in all of those experiences that Moses had, listen to me, he did it on behalf of others. He's in God's presence. God's using him in a powerful way, but he did it kind of in an office that he was serving. But now he's just standing there as an individual who's hungry for God's presence. He didn't ask for another miracle. 
What could else God have done, you know, that Moses hadn't seen? There was something in his heart. He was hungry for God's presence. You would think with the resume that he had, man, you know, that, that he would be happy. But I'm, I'm just telling you, he was doing that on behalf of others. And I want to just say, man, when all the miracles are done and, and God's used you in a powerful way, there's still this hunger down in the heart because we're created for fellowship with God. So I just, I want to see your glory. I don't need another Red Sea. I don't want to see another miracle. I just want to be in your presence. I just want to know you. A.W. Tozier says, I love this passage, to have found God and to still pursue Him is the soul's paradox of love. To have found God but still pursuing. All right? Is the soul's paradox of love. Sometimes we only see him as gift giver or the blesser or the one that gives favor or who opens doors. He's our healer. He's our restorer. And he is our provider. And that's all that we know him as. To some, you have found God, but you've stopped pursuing him. You've found God, but you've stopped pursuing him. You've got a little resume going. Nobody can compare with Moses. you got a little spiritual resume there. And you just kind of moved on thinking that's it. But I'm just telling you, there just comes a period of time where you're just hungry for Jesus. You just want to be close to God. I'm not asking for another miracle. Lord, I don't want you to do anything. Lord, I just want to sit in your presence. I just, I'm created for fellowship with you. I'm not, a, I'm not a machine here just to do things for you. I'm a child of God who is hungry for your presence. God said, come up here. There's a place near me where I want you to stand. Come next to me. Come next to me. From the Garden of Eden when he's looking because he wanted fellowship. To this moment where he says, come stand next to me. It's all about fellowship. It's all about proximity. It's all about being close to you, to, to God. Come, come near me. I want to tell you, there's a place for you closer to God than where you're at. If you'll give him that opportunity. There's a place in his presence. It's not, he just doesn't want to do miracles. Let's, let's just forget about that for a moment. All that we do, take off the hats of our offices this morning. Man, we are people that are hungry for the presence of Jesus who want to be close to Jesus. Not so that he can use us in some way just because we love him. I didn't pick up the cross at the moment of salvation in my life to preach, go to Columbia. I was just a sinner saved, that needed saving, that needed a transformation in my life. And I want to tell you, today I still feel the same. I stand before you preaching, but still I'm the same guy that just needed a Savior back when he was 19 years old. I want, to, I want, to, I want your presence. I want your presence. Paul said, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul said, pray this prayer, Ephesians 1.17, that you would have the spirit of revelation so that you may know him better. You may know him better. So those of you that have served him a long time and you look at your resume, nothing wrong with that, looking back and being thankful. If God's used you, 
But just know, man, we are more than just a ministry machine. Man, we are sons and daughters of God who he wants to fellowship with us. And listen, what happened with Moses, you don't hear a lot about that. It doesn't compare with the Red Sea, but to me it's just as important because here is a man that didn't ask for a miracle. He just wanted to be close to God. Just wanted to be close to God. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We worship you this morning, Lord. We worship you this morning, Lord. Lord, I pray for those that are, maybe they're away from you this morning. Lord, for whatever reason, they think being close to you has to do with being more moral, doing good deeds living like by some performance code, but Lord, with the law, it was empty. We cannot live with, we cannot live and reach that code for what the law was powerless to do. Lord, you sent your son. Lord, I pray for those that are away from you today. I pray for those that need to come back to faith this morning, though, Lord, they'll, They'll, they'll do that. They're going to put a prayer up on the screen while I'm praying. Man, you can whisper that prayer. God, I pray that you would save people. I pray for the prodigal, that you would draw them home. Lord, you're, you're speaking to people's hearts this morning. Lord, I pray for those that have been in the faith a long time. And Lord, we've our, our faith has transitioned to an office that, that we do, and it's not very personal. God, I pray and I thank you for people that serve and work here. But Lord, you've got more in our life than just service. Lord, there's fellowship and there's growing and there's maturing in you. God, I pray we'd follow that example of Moses. I just want more of your presence. I just want more of your presence. I pray, I pray for the people of faith. You would create a hunger, not just to do more things. But, Lord, that we just want your presence. We want to know your glory. We want to know your power. God, we just give you thanks today. We give you thanks today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Generations Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message today and pray God's greatest blessings on you. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, Check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter.